Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas, the Confluence Investment Management Podcast. Our guest today is the firm's chief market strategist, Bill O'Grady. Now, during these podcasts, we address current geopolitical issues affecting investment strategies, and we'll use a question and answer format. I'm Phil Adler, your moderator. Many of these discussions, each lasting about 20 to 25 minutes, will focus and expand on themes which have been presented in the firm's weekly geopolitical report, as well as the daily comment and other research articles written by the firm's experts. You can access these reports on the front page of confluenceinvestment.com, and it's a very easy step to subscribe by email to any of these reports. They're free. Our discussion today concerns hegemonic stability theory. This is a theory that carries weight with many economists, one that is valuable to the confluence geopolitical outlook and, as a result, does influence the firm's long-term investment decisions. Hegemony is not an everyday word, but it is a well-known word in economic and political science circles, and it's one that Bill O'Grady often uses in his analyses. Basically, you're talking about predominant influence exercised by one state over all others. Recently, I saw the word used in a review of the Television Emmy Awards. The reviewer said the fact that award winners were so diversified may mean an end to the hegemony of H. HBO in the world of quality streaming entertainment. Now, Bill, what some economists and political scientists are considering now is a possible winding down of U.S. hegemony in world affairs to a less dominant or even a non-dominant position. Let's look at the history of the hegemonic stability theory. Who came up with it? Uh, when and why? Well, the, the father of the theory is a man named Charles Kindleberger. Uh, you, you probably are familiar with the name from another masterwork he wrote called Manius Panics and Crashes. In fact, one of the things I often uh, say to people when they visit a financial analyst is if you don't see that book on the bookshelf, find another one. I've probably done more for the uh, Kindleberger family's uh, royalties than anyone else. But Kindleberger wrote a book called The World in Depression, 1929 to 1939. Now, there are enough books in, on the depression to uh, fill several shipping crates. But the fact is that his theory was that what caused the Great Depression was that the British were no longer able to provide the services of hegemony and the United States was unwilling to accept the burden that created a power vacuum that led to the Great Depression. So, what does the hegemon do? Well, here's kind of the way to think about it. Even though when we think about capitalism and we think about free markets, we, we consider things like, well, we let people have freedom to do what they want, to start businesses with the least amount of regulation possible. However, the government is necessary. And even Adam Smith remarked that the government had at a minimum to provide both internal and external security. You can't run a capitalist economy if you're being invaded. You can't run a capitalist economy if, if there's no internal security. And you had to have a government that enforced contracts. Uh, 
To some extent, that's what the hegemon does. The hegemon provides public goods to the world. Now, what is a public good? Uh, a public good is a good that usually is provided, but once it's provided, it's indivisible. So once a, a, let's say, a state or local government provides fire service, for example, it's got to provide it to everybody. Because if you had a fire department that said, well, you know, you, you didn't pay your fire fee, so we're going to let your house burn to the ground, more than likely you'd burn other people's houses to the ground, too. And, and so we, we let the government provide public goods because the government has the power of coercion and it can get its fees paid through taxes. Uh, private business can't do that. We can't put you in jail if you don't pay us, but you can go to jail if you don't pay your taxes. And, and that's kind of the, the framework that the hegemon provides for the global economy. You mentioned Great Britain. What other countries have achieved this dominant status in, in the past? Uh, there's been a series. Um, Portugal, during the colonial period, uh, they were ousted uh, by the Dutch. And then Britain actually had a couple swings at it. Uh, they, they had a rise, a fade, and then, and then a recovery. Um, and each one of these hegemons faced competitors. Uh, the Portuguese were always tussling with, with Spain. Uh, the Netherlands faced competition from Britain. They also did face some competition from France as well. Uh, when Britain was in its first rise, it was competing mostly with the French. And then in its second rise, uh, it was competing with Germany and then later the United States. What can we learn uh, from all of these uh, past hegemons that's important for investors to, to look at and consider? This is the one thing you want to take away. If you are in a period between hegemons, in other words, when one is fading and another one hasn't quite risen yet, these tend to be periods of great turmoil. Uh, we've, we've known, too, uh, when the British were fading the first time and the French were on the rise, we had the American Revolution, uh, the, uh, the bloody F French Revolution, and then the rise of Napoleon. And then in the last time we went through this, uh, where Britain was fading and the United States was not willing to accept the burden, we had World War I, the Great Depression, and World War II. When you don't have a functioning hegemon, the, the world goes awry. And it has uh, significant effects on everything, but, but especially on investment. Key roles that the hegemon performs – well, um, there are two big public goods that the hegemon provides. The first is global security. Uh, it, it does two things. It protects uh, both sea lanes and overland trade routes so that trade can be conducted. So if you're, if you're shipping goods uh, across the seas, pirates don't take them. Other countries don't inter intersect them and take them away. Uh, the second thing it does is that it it protects the world from having small wars evolve into big ones. Uh, so it acts sort of as a firefighter for, for global security. Uh, it doesn't mean they prevent all the wars any more so than a policeman prevents all crime. But a good beat cop prevents uh, small crimes from becoming big ones. The second thing it provides is the global reserve currency. Uh, it provides the financial infrastructure that not only supports trade, 
but supports global investment and helps less developed countries become developed ones. How do hegemons achieve their status? What conditions must happen or must uh, be, be there in order for a hegemon to emerge? Every hegemon has had a big economy. You have to be at least one of the world's top three economies generally to be a, uh, a hegemon. Uh, and you have to commit significant resources to the military. So it becomes generally easier to do to provide that big military if you also have a large economy. This is important because uh, we haven't talked about it much yet, but we might be approaching one of those in-between times. Yes, yes, it, it, it's, it's certainly looking that way. This is a, a theme that our regular readers w would be familiar with. We've been, you know, in fact, I kind of worry sometimes they may get bored with it, but we, we talk about this a lot. You, you say that hegemons need the support of the public to maintain that influence. Now, what might erode this support? Well, th when you are providing the reserve currency, the most effective way for foreigners to acquire your currency is to run a trade surplus with you. Uh, you become the global importer of last resort. And so your the hegemon's industries face unwithering and frankly unfair foreign competition. Foreign e economies structure themselves to export and they take specific steps like undervaluing their exchange rate. Uh, regulating themselves in such a way that they pay less than than the hedgemen's workers do. And so the workers and the industries in them face unwithering foreign competition. The British tried desperately to maintain a monopoly on, on textile weaving, uh, and the rest of the world eventually got it from them. Just think of all the industries that America has seen uh, really crushed by foreign competition, automakers, uh, textiles, furniture. Uh, if you build something in the hegemon's economy, you are going at some point to face foreign competition that, that is designed uh, to, to put you out of business to some extent. Uh, the constant need to have a large military and constant fighting. Uh, when the British were the hegemon, it was not uncommon for families to know that not the oldest child who was going to inherit everything, but the second, third, fourth, fifth son would always end up in the colonies and may live so far away that once they achieved adulthood, you'd never see them again or maybe see them once before you died. Uh, that was a sacrifice that the British were willing to make. Americans have made, made similar uh sacrifices. And the other issue that is commonly overlooked is that when you're the hegemon, every, you have lots of enemies. Will Chamberlain used to say that nobody roots for Goliath. And when you are the Goliath of the world, uh, you have lots of people that want to undermine that. And so you have to have very large security state in order to protect yourselves uh, f from those potential interferences. However, that large security state also interferes with the law liberties of your own citizens. And that that's a trade-off that you have to be simply willing to make. 
When, when you view world affairs today and current U.S. policy through this hegemonic lens, a lot of things seem to fall into place. We've seen periods in world history uh, without hegemons. What do these periods have in common? Well, the first thing you notice when you look at the economic data is, is trade declines. Um, you, you, you start to see uh, globalization fall apart and uh, you start to see regionalization uh, take hold. Um, there's a famous line John Maynard Keynes wrote in The Economic Consequences of the Peace where he wrote about a British citizen could lay in his bed and order stuff from around the world or invest anywhere with his telephone. And it sounded strikingly familiar, other than the fact he didn't have the internet, to what we do today. Um, that's a fruit of globalization that, that is amazing. And that, that's loss. That's the first thing you notice. The second thing you notice is that trade becomes more difficult because uh, the trade routes are no longer secure. Pirates arise. Countries start putting up trade barriers. It's, it's tougher to make things go. And then wars become more frequent. Let me ask you, do military and economic uh, hegemony always go um, hand in hand? Throughout history, they have. Uh, it, it, now, one of the things that I have been kind of spending some time thinking about, one of the things I like to do is I, I walk a couple of dogs each night and... Uh, one of the things I have discovered is if you're walking around St. Louis with a bag of dog dew in August, you you have lots of time to yourself. Um, but the I've been wondering about the old idea of Clausewitz is that you win a war by subduing the civilian population to your will. And that's going to change the nature of war. And we've already seen that the way war is is done in, through social media, through changing the uh, it may become less necessary to actually defeat the military to defeat the civilian population. So these are things that we, we will be watching going forward. But yes, throughout history, you needed a big economy and you needed a big military. Okay. In future Confluence of Ideas discussions, we'll explore some of the unique aspects of American hegemony, including the security element and also the financial element and how changes in status may influence long-term investment decisions. This has been the Confluence of Ideas. Our guest today has been Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady. Our report is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. Our website is confluenceinvestment.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Confluence IM. 